Good morning. Our sermon passage this morning is from the book of Jonah, chapters 3 and 4. You might say it's the rest of the story. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We have been looking this summer at a series on um, the call that God has given to us as his people, his church, to uh, missions and also to mercy. And, and so we've just been looking at what it means for us to be, for God to have a mission and for us as his people to be called to join him in that mission. And today we're going to take a slight detour I changed plans in the middle of the series a little bit in the last couple weeks because I wanted to talk about uh, what goes on here in Jonah chapter 4, which I think is, if I could, just pastorally and as your friend, say the number one obstacle, the number one obstacle to living missionally, and it's self-pity. And so this is a sermon on self-pity, which pity me for having to preach a sermon on self-pity, okay, Uh, because this is hard. Uh, but I think, we gotta, I think we've got to talk about these things. Um, God has a mission, and therefore the church has a mission. 
And the church is only the church when it's serving its purpose in the world. In other words, when it's carrying on Jesus' mission in his absence. Uh, so that's what church is. Remember, we said it would be better to say that God's mission is a church rather than to say that God's church has a mission. The church exists for the mission of God. And so the reason the church, especially in the West, is so dysfunctional, which we all would probably say that it is, is this. Is that pa- and, <laughs> this, is, this is hard, but pastors and church leaders are cowards. And instead of calling people to something bigger than themselves, they give in to the demands and the expectation of people uh, that they're serving, and the church begins to exist for itself. This is what happens, okay? And the assumption behind all of it is just this, that the church's job is to meet my personal needs. I mean, this has become standard evangelical doctrine. The church exists to meet my needs. The church's job is to meet the needs, which are really the desires, of the religious consumer And so this is the contract. You meet my needs, I will come to your church. You fail to meet my expectations at any time, the contract is broken and I will take my business elsewhere. Right? Okay? Religious consumerism. And the problem is, problem is, okay, incarnate with guys like me for just a minute. The problem is, you have to have people to have a church and so a pastor's caught because they need a paycheck. And in order to get a paycheck, they have to keep people happy or... You know, or the other end, pastors are vain and they want a big church. Uh, and the best way to grow a big church is to give people what they want and not ask for much from them. And so this is what happens. This is where we are. So two big problems here. First, it leads to confusion between needs and wants. What is a need and what is a want? And we are so prosperous in, our, you know, in America and in the West that we confuse the two. We assign a lot of things as needs that in the end of the day are really just wants. And here's how I said this, and this is going to be confusing, so I might need to say it a couple times, but what people want is not what people need. So in order to love people well, you often have to give them what they need and not what they want because that's what they really need. Right? Should I say that again? Okay. I thought it was kind of profound too, so I got... You know, if I could be vain for just a minute, I thought that is good. That doesn't happen very often, but with this particular statement, what people want is not what they need, okay? So in order to love people well, you often have to give them what they need and not what they want because that's what they really need. And that's where we find ourselves, so there's a confusion. Secondly, it really reinforces the narcissism and the self-absorption our culture is training us in. In other words, this way of doing church that we're talking about, it really trains us to think of ourselves ahead of any other concern. It trains us to put our needs and our desires and our wants uh, at the center of our lives and then demand that everybody else do the same thing, that they put our needs and wants and desires at the center of their lives too. And when others refuse to do this, in other words, when they don't pay attention to me the way I think they should or uh, when they don't affirm me and make me feel good about myself, well, then I, how dare they? And typically... In relationships where this happens, we get angry or we melt down into despair, which are both forms of self-pity. So the corrective is, biblically, the church's job is not to meet people's needs. The church is the place where, by the power of the Spirit, we learn to put the needs of others above our own and to live, to glorify God, and to serve other people. It's where we're freed by the Spirit to not just live for ourselves. And you see, this is the problem, because belonging to a church puts you on a collision course with your pride and selfishness. 
And when it happens, and it's going to, if it hasn't, or if it's currently, when it happens, wherever you are in this thing, when you don't get your way, or you feel neglected, or somebody hurts your feelings, or you don't get invited to something that you think you should have been invited to, or you know something along those lines happen, it doesn't mean the church is full of hypocrites, or it's a broken institution. It means the church is working, it's doing your job, and God's using it to sanctify you. We've got to retrain ourselves to think this way. And so in order to live missionally, there has to be a measure of self-forgetfulness. You have to stop thinking about yourself. You have to stop worrying about how your needs are going to be met. Stop feeling sorry for yourself when people turn out to be sinners and disappoint you, which is going to happen over and over and over again. And the irony is, is that religion doesn't do anything to weed this out of the heart. If anything, it's like miracle grow for pride and selfishness. Do you know that? Religion is like miracle grow for pride. It is. And that, I mean, for that to be funny, I mean, because that, that's serious. I mean, it, it is. It's like miracle grow for self-pity and pride. And I say that because of what happens to Jonah in the story. So let's look at the story, okay? And Jonah is a prophet, a representative of Israel who has been, Israel as a people as a whole, who has been sent by God as the nation of Israel had to the nations of the world, in this case, Nineveh, their great arch enemy, Jonah, when the word of the Lord comes saying go, says, I don't think so, and heads to Tarshish instead, uh, where God sends a storm to disrupt his journey. Jonah finds himself being thrown overboard willingly by the sailors on the boat that he's traveling with so that God would calm the storm. God is gracious to provide a fish to swallow Jonah in the belly of that fish. Jonah cries out to God for mercy. God shows mercy, speaks to the fish to spit him out on dry land, and the word of the Lord again comes in verse 1 of chapter 3 here. Go to Nineveh, this time Nineveh goes, and things go well. He preaches, I said last week, probably the absolute worst evangelistic message that is ever recorded in human history. It's terrible, and yet God is gracious, and he moves upon the hearts of the people of Nineveh. And Jonah gets mad. And so here's what we want to see this morning, just two things. I want to ask, why is Jonah so angry? <laughs> Why is he so angry? And I think the answer is self-pity. Hence a sermon on self-pity. But why is he so angry? And then secondly, then how do you overcome your self-pity and your anger in order to move out of mission? Because that's really where the, the, the story's trying to resolve. Okay, so let's look. Okay, first, identifying self-pity. What do I mean by it? What do I mean by that self-pity? What am I talking about? Okay, this is really what the last chapter of the book of Jonah is about, I think. And Jonah has concluded this revival tour through Nineveh, and the city has unexpectedly repented. I mean, there's been genuine revival, okay? Can we say that? And, and let me just say, this is what every preacher dreams about. I would love for people to tear their clothes and put on sackcloth and, sackcloth and like, dust, dust themselves with ash. Right? Because it means they've heard his message, and they've taken it to heart, and it's come into their life, and it's affected them deeply, and they're repenting. So this is what every preacher dreams about. And yet in verse 1 of chapter 4 we read, This displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What? I mean, why is Jonah angry? I mean, that's the question. This is absolutely ridiculous. It is impos- it's preposterous. Why in the world is he so angry? And this is not just, I'm a little aggravated with you, God. This is, if this is how you do things, God, I'd rather die than live. Jonah is so angry he wants to die. Three times he says it, right? 
So a lot of commentators say this is a sign of depression or deep emotional pain. I mean, Jonah's in depression. His life, Nineveh repents and Jonah gets depressed. I mean, his life is ripping apart at the seams. Jonah's in the middle of an existential crisis, you know, the philosophers would say. If this is the way things work, then why go on living? Yeah, you know, but what is it that he's so upset about? And the answer is just as shocking as his anger. So his anger's shocking, but look at the answer. The, the, the answer is just as shocking, and it's just this, verses 3 and 4. Jonah is mourning and depressed and suicidal and angry because God's merciful. You see that? Jonah's ticked off because God forgives sins. Verses 3 and 4. Uh, or, I'm sorry, verse 2. Uh, you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So, ah, see, now we finally get to the root of Jonah's disobedience in the first place. He says, this is why I didn't obey you. This is why when you said go to Nineveh, I went to Tarshish because I knew you would do this. I knew this would happen. I knew you would be merciful and you would forgive these people, and I couldn't live with that. So Jonah can't live in a world where God shows steadfast love to repentant sinners. And that's gross. But why should it upset Jonah so deeply? Why wouldn't he rejoice at Nineveh's salvation? What's going on? And the answer is self-pity. And that sounds strange. So again, we've got to ask, you know, what do I mean by this? And to explain it, I want to read... Uh, from a quote from John Piper, which I've had printed in the worship folder for you, because it it came it just it was so powerful, and I want to come back to it over and over again. And I, I joked with Jonathan this morning that really when I read the quote, I thought I got to preach a sermon on that, and so maybe this is a, a a sermon on a quote by John Piper in search of a text from Scripture. <laughs> but I hope not, because I think all these things are connected here. And what what Piper does is he said he connects self pity to pride. It's Jonah's pride that's been injured. His whole his identity, his whole sense of who he is, is crumbling on the other side of this event. And this is what I think John Piper describes very clearly, and then the text also relates. So let's look at this, te- this uh, quote for just a minute. Uh, it's printed for you there. John Piper says, The nature and depth of human pride are illustrated by comparing boasting with self-pity. Both are manifestations of pride. Boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I've sacrificed so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. The reason self-pity does not look like pride, in other words, we we don't often identify. You wouldn't look at Jonah here and think pride. We don't often identify. We feel sorry typically for people. We don't, you know, self-pity doesn't kind of red light for pride. But, but he says the reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be needy. But the need arises from a wounded ego. And the desire of the self-pitying is not really for others to see them as helpless, but as heroes. The need self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It is the response of unapplauded pride. Now back to the text. See, Jonah feels sorry for himself. I mean, that's what's happening here. I mean, somehow in God's showing mercy to Nineveh, Jonah feels like he's been mistreated. He's somehow suffered an injustice. Uh, So look at John Piper's definition again. He says, self-pity is the response of pride 
to suffering. Jonah's pride has been injured in God's treatment of Nineveh. In effect, he's saying, I don't deserve this. And the irony is, it's not really about Jonah at all, is it? It's about God, who is merciful and showing love for sinners like those in Nineveh. But Jonah is so self-consumed, it's so just you know, thinking only about himself, it's all just about him. He makes it all about him. God shows mercy to Nineveh. I don't deserve this. In effect, Jonah's charging God with doing something wrong. He feels slighted. He feels attacked. He suffered. And what in his mind has God done wrong? I think it boils down to this. In Jonah's mind, God is not treating the Ninevites as they deserve to be treated. They deserve, in his mind, worse than they're getting. They deserve to be punished. They're the bad guys. They deserve hellfire and brimstone. But also, see, God is not treating Nineveh as Nineveh deserves, but in the process, God is not treating Jonah as he deserved to be treated. He's the good guy. He deserves to be treated better. He, you know, he deserves vindication. And this is why Jonah's world is splitting apart. The bad guys are being rewarded and the good guys are being punished. And if you're a bad guy... That's great news, but if you consider yourself one of the good guys, it seems unfair. I mean, why go through the trouble of doing things this way anyway? I mean, if it doesn't make any difference in the way things end, you know? Poor Jonah. Don't you feel sorry for him? I mean, how dare God do that to him? I mean, he's like a child in the middle of a temper tantrum. And that's how he's characterizing himself here. And this is where I think John Piper... Uh, what he has to say is about self-pity is really so helpful, at least it was for me, because first he recognizes that self-pity is rooted in a neediness. and an inter- there's, a, there's, a, there's a pride and self-absorption that is native to the soil of our hearts. And, and what happens is, is, is this pride gets offended in some way and it creates a neediness. There's an inter-emptiness that kind of stems out of this. Uh, and it seems to me we know this to be true. Uh, Lecrae, if, who, if you're into Christian rap, you know he's a Christian rapper, uh, which he's, he's great. Josh Nicholson, thank you for turning me on to him. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, but he has a line in a song that it just really, really uh, affected me when, I, when he, he says, you know, I've got this emptiness and I'm not going to rap it. I'll just say it to you, okay, because we don't want to. <laughs> that would not be cool. Okay, I got this, you know, I could like break into it. We won't do that. Well, I'll just, I'll just quote. How about that? He says, I've got this emptiness inside that's got me fighting for approval because I missed out on my daddy saying way to go. Now, that's very insightful. I mean, very, very insightful on the part of that man. He really does understand his heart really well. He says, I've got this inter, inner emptiness that's, that I've missed out on approval that I needed. And this, there's this inner emptiness that's driving me to look for affirmation in all the wrong places, places and, the, and the approval of other people and sexual relationships, you know, in becoming famous and wealthy in order to, to impress people. And I think if you look closely enough, you'll find this theme kind of woven into a lot of the stories that we tell as a culture. I was thinking of one movie in particular where this is really powerful. And dads, if you have sons and you've not, you need to rent Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. You need to sit down with that movie and watch it with your boys. Because it is the story. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I, didn't, I didn't really know what to expect when I went to see the movie, but I was powerfully affected. It is the story of a boy named Flint who is desperate for his father's approval because his mom's died, and he and his dad could not be more different than they, than they, they are from one another. And he lives all of his life feeling his father's frown rather than experiencing his father's smile because he was like his mom, and he's so unlike his dad. 
And so he tries over and over again to create uh, inventions that will impress his dad. And he can never seem to get it done. And one reviewer I looked up this week even begins his review like this. He says, young inventor Flint Lockwood has a gaping hole in the center of his heart that can only be filled by one elusive affirmation. And that, that's, that's it. Yeah. I mean, that's what John Piper's saying. That's what the Bible is trying to teach us. That all of us, all of us, we have this gaping hole in the center of our hearts that we're trying to fill. So like Flint Lockwood, we, this inner emptiness drives us to seek affirmation from anybody who will give it to us. And when we get it, when we, when we are affirmed, it produces pride. There's boasting, as, as John Piper says and as the Scripture says. But when we don't get the approval we're after, when people don't notice us, when, we don't, when they don't pay attention to us like we think they should, then the response is self-pity. And Piper says it is, these are the two ways he says it, unrecognized worthiness it is the result of unrecognized worthiness, and it is the response of unapplauded pride. And here's what John Piper is saying. He's saying we all have an inner emptiness. We have a psychological need that is driving our lives, a deep desire for approval, for applause. And one of the ways we go about trying to satisfy this need is to do good things so that others will recognize and praise us for, for them, especially at the very, very core of our lives so that God will, will recognize the good that we've done and he will applaud us for it. We become moral, and we follow the rules, or we make some great sacrifice, or you know whatever the case may be, or we, we, we do something for the cause that others aren't willing to do. We choose a life that is harder and more demanding than others are willing to live because we want people to see us as heroes and to applaud us. And when they don't... When I've worked hard and my kids are well-behaved and people don't compliment them or they dare to criticize them or when I spend the afternoon cleaning the house and making sure everything's put away and I've been working so hard while Ashley's been out playing with her friends all afternoon and I've been home with the kids and she dares to come home and not notice and not compliment me. Right? I'm angry. I shrivel up and just go into despair. Why? Why? Self-pity. See, I've been the hero. And she didn't notice. I've sacrificed while she was playing. You know? I've worked hard while others have not been willing to, and they're just as well off as I am in the end. I've done all of these things, and nobody has applauded my efforts. Nobody even pays attention to me, and my pride can't stand for that. That's Jonah. He's an Israelite. He's on God's team. He's a good guy. He's been faithful to God his whole life. He deserves to be blessed and rewarded. Those other people in Nineveh, they are the enemy. They are the bad guys. They kill the good guys. They deserve to be punished, and yet God shows them mercy. He forgives them He does not treat them as their sins deserve, but this in turn makes Jonah feel like he's not been treated as his obedience deserves. And there's an interesting parallel in Jesus' story of the prodigal son, and you might remember the story. A man has two sons, and one of them asks for his, his inheritance early, and he goes away into a far country where he squanders his father's money, the family's money, and returns home penniless. But when he gets home, he doesn't get the lecture he's expecting. His father welcomes him with open arms. He returns... Uh, and, and is celebrated in his return 
the father kills the fatted calf and throws a party for the whole village. And then the older brother, the firstborn, <laughs> like me, comes home from working in the field. See, they're partying. He's been working. He's insulted. He refuses to go in and join the party. So his father comes out to ask him what is wrong, and out of nowhere, I mean, out of nowhere, if you read Jesus' story, he just explodes on his father and begins to accuse him of favoritism. I mean, his father's love and acceptance of his brother feels like a rejection to him, and it's an insult. And why is he insulted? He says, all these years I've slaved for you and never disobeyed your commands, and you never even gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. This son of yours comes home, wasting your money, and you kill the fatted calf for him? See, it's self-pity. He's responding to unrecognized worthiness. See, I'm the good son. I'm the good son. He's the bad son. And you're rewarding him and not me. The party should be for me. You should be celebrating me, not him. See, this is unapplauded pride. All these years I've been working hard. I've been slaving for you and you've not noticed. You've never said good job. And this is what we're talking about. You see, there's a couple of things that happen in this. And the first is, if, you're, if, you're, if you really give yourself over to this and if you live in self-pity like this, it really distorts your reality. It's like a lens. You know, if you put on a, a, a glasses with a purple lens and then you look through them, everything looks purple, Right? This is like how this works. Self-pity will distort your view of things. You'll, you're likely to develop a martyr syndrome. You know what that is, right? You know what, when we talk about a martyr, you act like you've been victimized in order to get sympathy from other people because what you need is the recognition. You need people to say, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, you're right. That's terrible. Right? Why? Because what is it? You've been unapplauded and you're looking for the affirmation. So you get a victim, you, you get a martyr syndrome, you begin to assume distorts reality. You begin to assume other people's motivations. You'll caricaturize people and cast them as the bad people who are just mean, which will lead you to despise them. But what's really going on is your pride's been wounded, and it's a defense mechanism. This is what's happening. The elder brother in Jesus' story accuses his father, you're not a good dad. You're not generous. You don't love me. I mean, he believes that. That's his version of reality. And nothing could be further from the truth, because what does the father say? He says, son... All I have is yours. Nothing you're accusing me of is true. So it distorts your reality, but then secondly, it exposes your motivation. In other words, when I do something and nobody applauds me, or I feel underappreciated and I just get sullen and sulky and feel sorry for myself and throw a pity party and all of that, then it exposes that all along in doing the good things that I've been doing, my goal has been this, to try. Now, my goal wasn't to love God. My goal wasn't to love other people. I've been trying, I've been doing these things to try to get people to applaud me, and they haven't. I mean, this is really ugly. You with me? This is ugly. But the worst part is it will absolutely destroy your ability to live missionally. It's the self-destruct button on on the panel, on the control panel. And the lesson Jonah's teaching us in this part of his story It's just this, that both Jonah and the elder brother in Jesus' story, they're both doing good things. Jonah's a preacher, okay? Jonah's a preacher, and the elder brother, he's the the one that's been slaving in the fields and doing all the work while his brother's been away, you know, screwing around and wasting money. They're both doing good works. But what's being exposed in both these places in the Scriptures is that the reason they're doing good works is to try to get noticed. 
Both Jonah and the, and the elder brother in both their respective places in the scripture are meant to be represent, representatives of religious people. And this is what religious people do. They live moral lives to try to gain applause, either from other people or from God. Uh, they try to fill up the emptiness by being a good person. But by definition, okay, what we've been talking about all summer is to live missionally means you've got to be self-forgetful. You've got to stop thinking about yourself so much and start thinking about other people. And that's what religious people can't do. It's like miracle grow for pride. You just become self-obsessed. But to live missionally means you put the needs of others ahead of your own needs. It means you locate your joy in the good that others experience and not in your own good. It means you live for other people, not just for you. To live missionally means you weed out the pride and self-pity so that you can go into a situation. You can, you, know, you can go into a relationship, whatever the case may be, and you can sincerely think, what do these people need from me? How can I give them what they need? And you can do good works and not be on the take. I'll be trying to fill up this inner emptiness. Okay, so how does this happen? Well, the second point then is this. You've got to learn, and I've got to learn, to embrace the truth that God tries to teach Jonah in the rest of chapter 4. So let's take a look at that, okay, as we come to a finish. Now, Jonah has forgotten the lesson he learned earlier in the fish's belly, that salvation belongs to the Lord, verse 9 of chapter 2. In other words, salvation is what God does. It is a work of God's grace. It is not that good people are on God's team and bad people are God's enemies, uh, this is typical, you know, doctrine. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. But the truth is there are no good guys. We're all bad guys. We all deserve God's wrath and condemnation, even the best of us. And the only hope we have, verse 2, is that God, in fact, is merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Amen? I mean, you see? I mean, this is, right? And this is what Jonah's forgotten or maybe never really understood to begin with. It is what the elder brother in Jesus' story Forgot that at the bottom of both of their lives, they believe salvation belongs to me. Salvation is what I do. It is my effort. It is my hard work. It is my moral achievement that earns me God's love and acceptance. And this is what we call works righteousness. So, an example, you hit the home run. What does the crowd do? You strike out. Boo. And in Jonah's mind, he had hit the home run. But nobody was cheering. And that's why his world's falling to pieces. And if you, like me, can identify with what I'm saying, you can see where you're prone to boasting and hungering for praise and approval, or you're prone to self-pity, or you're bouncing between the two like I do. (laughs) It just means that you're still, still, there's still a part of you that's not believing in the gospel, and you're still operating in a works righteousness System And so this is the object lesson God takes Jonah through. We're told, verse 6, that God appointed a plant to shade Jonah from the sun, and the shade and the fruit cheered Jonah up. But then the next day, God appointed a worm that ate the plant, and then God appointed an east wind, a very hot wind coming off the desert mountains, uh, that turned the heat up, and Jonah got very upset and depressed again. And so there's a couple of things here as well that God is trying to teach Jonah and to us as well. The first is... Jonah, look, you can see, Jonah is very glad about the good things that God brings into his life, but very angry about the bad things. I mean, and his anger reveals something about his heart. And I think it really is just this, that Jonah believes he deserves better than he's getting. He is angry because in his estimation, he is being mistreated. And the lesson God is teaching him is that all of life is an unmerited gift. Every breath, every blessing 
I mean, he says, verse 10, Jonah, Jonah didn't plant the vine in the ground. Jonah didn't cause it to grow. Jonah wasn't responsible for the, the shade that protected him from the sun. God did all of that in an act of kindness and generosity. All of life is grace, in other words. All of it is a gift. It's not the shade of the plant is not a reward for services rendered, nor is the worm a curse. God doesn't work that way. And this reveals a second thing that God is teaching Jonah, and it's just this, that Jonah, in the process of these things, Jonah has put God in the dock. He's put God on trial. He's trying to tell God what he can and can't do. He's trying to tell God how things should work, and in Jonah's mind, it should go like this. Good people deserve to be blessed, and bad people deserve to be destroyed. And by being angry with God, Jonah is saying, you're wrong. You're wrong. The way you do things is wrong. And this is God's comeback. Who do you think you are? Right? The rest of this is a rebuke. So look here. I mean, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase what God is saying to him in this, in this series of events. I'm not like you, Jonah. Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. I forgive iniquity. The people who, people, I have compassion on those who are, who are guilty and run to me for mercy. Look down at Nineveh, Jonah, and see the people there. You look down there and you see people that should be destroyed but you don't see them rightly. You're angry and you're hurt. See, I look at Nineveh and I see souls that are held captive to sin. Do you see verse 11? They do not know their right hand from their left. They're, they're, they're captive. They're not, they're not even able to discern good from wrong. I mean, they're completely captive to, to evil and sin. Jonah, you want justice. I desire mercy. I'm not like you, Jonah. Look at yourself. You have more compassion. You're full of pity and Sadness because the plant that was shading you withered and died than you do about the fact that there are 120,000 souls down there in Nineveh. I mean, really? I mean, who do you think you are? What have you done that's earned you the right to think this way? How dare you take the place of judge over these people and over me? I mean, this is scary. I mean, I'm, I'm scared to death at this because this is what religion does. And I, I have, you know, I grew up a religious person and, and, and trying to repent of my religion, but here's what it does. If you're here and you're not a Christian, okay, and you've wondered all your life why Christians seem to be so arrogant and judgmental, it's because of this. You ready? It's because they're not Christians. They're religious people. They're religious people that believe in a works righteousness system. In other words, they believe that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, and they've been good, which elevates them to the place of judge and jury over everybody else and even over God. That gives me shivers. And, and the correction is just this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is what God does. It's a gift. It's grace. It means you do nothing and God does everything. And we don't earn salvation through moral efforts or achievements. And if you're a Christian, it's not because you're a good person or because you come to church or do religious things. If you're, those things don't make you a Christian. If you're a Christian, what makes you a Christian is that God has done something on your behalf for you, despite you, and he brings you into it. And here's what he's done. Here's what he's done. I mean, Jonah, we're told, went outside of the city to condemn it. He, verse 5, wanted a front row seat for whatever destruction God would bring. I mean, can't... Send the fire, you know? And he wanted to be right there so he could see it. Oh, yeah. Burn, you know? I mean, can you just, I mean, really? 
This is, I mean, that's not, that's for real. You know, Casey Anthony, ha, you know. This, I mean, Jonah went outside the city to condemn it, but we're told in the scripture that there was another prophet who went outside of the city, and we read about him in Hebrews 13. Now Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. So Jonah went outside the city that spared his life to condemn it, but Jesus was dragged outside of the city weeping for it and died to save it because the sins of bad people like those in Nineveh and the sins of good people like Jonah demanded payment. But because Jesus was rejected and suffered, the Bible says that if we put our faith and trust in him, then we can have the praise of God. Do you know what that means? It means because of Jesus' work, God recognizes us. It mean, I mean, this is what the scripture would teach. If you're a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, and so your sin became his upon the cross so that his righteousness can become yours, God stands to applaud you. And this is the approval that we really need that we can only get in the gospel. And so here's what, we're, what we learn. It is the gospel. The gospel has to fill up your inner emptiness. And if the gospel does that, if the love of God... See, this is a religious person, Jonah is, who's still trying to make his way on his own apart from what God has done. But if, if, you, if you turn away from all of your religious impulses to the truth of the gospel, which is salvation is of the Lord, salvation is what God does. It is an act of sovereign initiation and grace. On his part. And when that becomes a reality to you. When you realize I'm not saved because of anything I've done. And if the love of God for you and Jesus Christ comes into your heart. And you really begin to know it and to rely on it. Then here's what will happen. When people applaud you. It won't really affect you. Why? You, you won't be addicted. You won't become addicted to it. You know. Always looking for the next hit. Uh, you won't do things to notice. For people to notice you or for the applause. Why? Because, because you, have, you have the praise of God. And that also means that when they don't applaud you, when you're ignored or even mistreated, it won't really affect you there either. It won't crush you. It won't cause you to despise the people who left you out. You'll still be able to serve others. You'll be just as joyful in those moments as if you got a standing ovation because in the gospel you have a standing ovation from the one that really matters. And he sees. And you see, the point of all of this is that only then, only then, only when your life is sourced, when your joy and your, is sourced in the love of God and you're filling up the inner emptiness of your heart by, by the appropriation of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus and not trying to fill up that inner emptiness by doing good things so people will notice, only when you turn away from all of that other stuff, even from religion, to the truth of the gospel, only then... When you know that, when it's there at the center of your life, only then can you truly go out and begin to live missionally and not selfishly. And that's why this is so important. And so let's pray that God would do that work among us, can we? Lord Jesus, probably more than us, more, more of us than are comfortable admitting would find a lot of ourselves in Jonah sulking on the hillside, glorying in the suffering and pain that he looked forward to you bringing upon his enemies. Uh, it, but I am, so, I just marvel, I marvel, I marvel at the way the scripture can just expose our hearts for us uh, in ways that are amazing and yet fearful and um, strange and yet so clear.
And I confess to you, I confess to you, that as I looked at this passage all week long, I found so much of myself there, and I am, I am deeply sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me for thinking I've done great things and that those great things have provided a record for me that makes me judge and jury of others and even of you. Forgive the arrogant boasting and pride uh, that is the aroma of my life so many times and also the the self-pity and the the self-regard that just drives me to despair. And I pray that for me, above all, but for my friends here as well, that you would come and send your spirit into our hearts and that the spirit would come bearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to our rebellious, selfish hearts, and that the result would be that the Spirit would free us from our selfishness and would begin to work to make us people who would truly live for the sake of your glory and truly live to serve other people, and that the result would be a harvest of righteousness in our church, in our families, in our city, and in our world that we can't possibly imagine. Would you come and do this work in us, for the sake of the work you've called us to uh, in our city and in our world, that you might be glorified. Lord Jesus, come even as we sing now and whisper your love in our ears. May we sense the standing ovation of heaven that is awaiting us on the day we get there, even in these moments. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'm thankful for that song. That is the heart of gratitude and faith, as opposed to... uh, pride, whether it be boasting or self-pity. And so, as we go, I don't want the flavor of what we've talked about this morning to be that, that we just overlook sin, because God does not overlook sin either. We go, remember the message to Jonah was, go to Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has risen up against me. Uh, and so we go, if anything, God has given us a ministry of going to confront the sin of our city and the, confront sin in one another. And if that be the case, then even more so. We better have a, a source to plug our lives into because you can be pretty sure you're not going to get the affirmation you're looking for from the people you're confronting about their sin. Right? And so there's a need for us to go somewhere else, and it is just here. It is in the promise of the benediction uh, that, that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then you have the praise of God. God the Father looks upon you, and he applauds you not for deeds that you have done, but because of what his Son has accomplished on your behalf. And so let's believe into that this morning and ask for a greater faith in that reality as I speak this benediction over you. Uh, If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then this is the promise with which God sends you out into the world, into the mission he's called you to. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.